0: So, um, how, how many of you have ever read The Rule of St. Benedict? Oh, oh. Now you have. Okay, well this this is it. It won't take you very long. Oh. Very small little book. Um, and it was written in the 6th century. And it... Was probably the most influential book in Western culture and society after the Bible. So for more than a thousand years, the the life uh, and the institutions that came out of this document created, in a way, most of our most of our uh, familiar institutions like. Universities and schools, and hospitals, and uh, uh, the civil service, and many other uh, expressions of of our civilized of our civilization. So uh, Saint Benedict did, clearly didn't imagine that that was going to happen. And when you read the rule, you may at first feel well what is so special about this little rule. It has chapters on, for example, let me just um, that the monks presume not to defend one another, or um, on the daily manual labor, or, one of my favorite, on the clothes and shoes of the brethren, or on what kind of man the cellarer. Of the monastery should be, and how are the monks to sleep? <coughs> or on reverence of prayer, on prayer, uh, uh, in prayer. And then there are a number of chapters on the order of the prayer times, and what order the psalms should be recited. In. So it's a very practical little document. So you might say, what, why should something as practical, as down-to-earth as this, and as, a, as specific as this, have had such an enormous influence upon a whole society. And uh, it's, it expresses a way of life, an approach to life, which has been beneficial <clears throat> not only to monks but to lay people, living, married, single, in the world, to organizations, business schools. I teach a course at uh, Georgetown University on meditation and leadership, and I always do uh, a class on the chapter of uh, on the abbot of the monastery. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, there's something in it <coughs> which is... Um, extremely timeless and inclusive without trying to be. It doesn't set out to be one of the world's most significant religious documents. Um, and I don't think Benedict, about whom we know very little. This is this is the book on the life of St. Benedict, so not much bigger. And it's mostly little miracle stories, but miracle stories which actually have a symbolic and... Significant significance about them, but uh, written about a generation after Benedict. So we know very little about his actual life. Even the name Benedict is, comes from the Latin Benedictus, which means the blessed one. So um, he presumably existed, but uh, he wasn't a personality in the way that we think of celebrities, you know. So I thought I. I it, it's. I'm always interested in speaking about the Rule of Saint Benedict because it has shaped my life. I'm a Benedictine monk, um, and I read the Rule every day. A little chapter, a little section of the Rule every day. In our community in uh, Islington, where Henriette uh, uh, lives, we have a, at the moment we have a small uh, community of of people who live in the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict and every morning they meet uh, after the morning meditation and breakfast uh, and reflect on the rule together we'll take a little passage from the rule and reflect on it tell us what that's like
1: so this morning it was the it was the chapter on humility so I do it 8 eight years now, and I think three times a year you come around the whole book. And every time it surprises me what the discussion will bring up. And sometimes it's very, um, very practical, sometimes it's a more theological discussion, but most of the time it relates very much to our lives together. And I always say, I probably wouldn't be able to live in community without the rule of St Benedict as a guidance. It's just so. It's not only down to earth in okay. If you if you have used something, you have to bring it back in good order. But it's also very much on how we live with each other, how we respect each other, and what humility is, and yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, that's good. So it's very it's, it's very practical, but it, it, it has a mysterious synchronicity about it, too. Um, if you're... if You need to get to know it, so you need to read it. At first you may wonder why people make such a lot of fuss about it. But after you have got to know it, and it's begun to sunk in, sink into your mind a little bit, then it begins to operate as... One of those special kind of texts with which we in modern Western society are not very familiar. We um, we don't have much gift anymore, or we've lost the gift of being able to read, to be able to read these kind of texts, the scriptures, texts of scripture of any tradition, in the way that. We have to read them if we are to be nourished by them. Or you could almost say, if we are to be read by them. These texts are different from ordinary books or you know, telephone directories or no. textbooks or philosophical treatises. These are texts um, which uh, have a capacity to open our minds and hearts at the same time and to show us new ways of being, to open us to something novel and fresh. And the the loss of the ability, which you can see in our education system, to be able to read these texts is devastating, I think, for our culture. Mm. And the irony is, of course, is that they have never been more readily available. You can, you can go down to Waterstones and buy the, the world's great spiritual texts, you know, at a very reasonable price. But uh, the ability to read them is, um, is in short supply. I think the rule in its own way is a text like that although it's not like the Upanishads it's not even like the Gospels although the rule of St. Benedict is clearly immersed in the uh, spirit of the Gospels and informed by the biblical scriptures and if we want to know Benedict's mind we will get to know the mind of, of the biblical wisdom that he was soaked in. And again, this is something very foreign to us. The early Christian monks who began, we could say, about the beginning of the fourth century in northern Egypt, were um, a mixture of people who had renounced the world at a time when the Christian Church had become very... uh, Acceptable. It was no longer being persecuted. The Emperor Constantine had, had even made it the official religion of the Empire, although waited until his own deathbed before he was converted. Um, so the Church had, in quite a short space of time, moved from its primitive marginality to suddenly being, you know, important and, you know, part of the establishment. And, of course, it went on in the Western world and in the Eastern Eastern Church to become an important part of the political and economic structures. But until then the church was a a group of very small communities living sometimes under persecution, not always but living uh, uh, with a a, a, through small communities with a very passionate uh, and clear spiritual intention. The intention was to find purity of heart to live in poverty of spirit to see God and to discover what it means to pray without ceasing. These are some of the the key Mm -hmm. themes that drove the Christian life. And then, you know, success came and uh, the Church became... uh, a major secular institution. And so in response to that, the monastic movement started. uh, People who wanted to live the purity of the original gospel inspiration and were prepared to experiment with their lives, to go out into the desert, to, to literally give away everything they had to the poor, to live under conditions of extreme simplicity, in solitude and in community and or in mixture the mixture of solitude and community devoting themselves to a life of spiritual transformation and within a generation this movement had become another success <laughs> uh, so people from all over the christian world came to the deserts of egypt to visit these teachers and this colony these colonies of of monks, men and women, known as the Abbas and the amos of the desert, and and this had a this this movement had a, a great repercussions throughout the uh, throughout the, the known world and throughout the church. And um, <clears throat> the wisdom of the desert, this 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 experience of of Christian monasticism and remember it was a lay movement these were not priests when Claudia introduced me she said he's a priest and a Benedictine monk well I would have said it the other way around a Benedictine monk and a priest but uh, in some ways to be a priest and a monk is is a diminishing of the monastic vocation I became a priest because it was a way of serving my monastic community But uh, to be a monk, it is not necessary to be a priest, and in fact, you're not as a monk. You're just barely in the uh, in the hierarchical structure. You are, but you're on the margin. So you'll always be put at the at the at the bottom of the of the church. You know where when all the cardinals and bishops are all sitting. So the monks are pretty marginal. So, and this is and originally it was a, a, a lay movement men and women in the lay state. Some were ex-senators from Rome, others, many of them, were just peasants. Uh, There are socio-economic explanations to why the monastic movement started. But basically it became a a phenomenal spiritual movement, a radical commitment to prayer Mm -hmm. and to the community that prayer creates As a way of transformation. Now, this wisdom of the desert found its way from Egypt to uh, the south of France through a monk called John Cassian. John Cassian wrote a great number of two great works. The greatest work was called Conferences of Cassian, and this is a distillation of. His what he had learnt from the from the sitting at the feet of the teachers of the desert, and the direct connection with us here would be that uh, two two really one is that Cassian is Cassian who brought the teaching on meditation into the Western Church that he had learnt in the desert. And it was this teaching on meditation that inspired my teacher, John May, to begin to teach meditation in, in the Christian tradition. Uh, and it has led to our community, worldwide community, and to our new centre in Bombay and so on. So uh, that, that's the f- that was the, f- the first immediate connection with us here. I think it's important to feel these connections, otherwise all this history begins to sound rather abstract. Um The other uh, connection is that uh, Cassian established a form of monastic life based on the desert wisdom and practice, but adapting it to uh, European life and circumstances. And the monastic... Uh, phenomenon began to sp- spread I- in Europe as it has in every civilization in history there's no, there's no civilization really in history that hasn't at some point of its development created something like a monastic movement and uh, obviously Buddhism is, is a very strongly monastic uh, monastic religion I say so monasticism um, was beginning to spread in e- Europe, but it was it was, as it should be, rather unrestrained and unmonitored and a little, a little difficult for the institutional church to to manage. The, Monks were really, uh, uh, in some ways, the ancestor, the the, the descendants of the uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, and the prophets were originally little bands of hairy, uh, slightly wild individuals, wandering around, undisciplined, uh, and yet speaking passionately for justice and uh, the experience of God. From their hearts and getting themselves stoned or uh, executed and so on uh, in the process very often. So the monks were, monast- monasticism really has that prophetic marginality about it, mm-hmm. where interiority reaches so deep that it produces a, a message and a um, communication which affects the external world. Just as in meditation, the deeper you go in meditation, the more you, you find yourself relating to the external world without a sense of duality. There is, of course, a functional difference between the inner world and the outer world. But the deeper one goes into what we call the, in, the inner world, the more we realize that that is a, a duality and that there is a higher awareness uh, in which that duality is transcended. So it says in the Gospel of Thomas, when the inner and the outer are one, then the kingdom of heaven will be revealed. Well, that is uh, really, that insight is really at the heart of monasticism. And it explains the effect of monasticism when it is truly interior, it hasn't become suburbanized and or clericalized, but that explains the effect of, of real monasticism on the society and culture around it. So this is what was, began to happen when, in the beginning of the 5th century, when Castian came back or came to, uh, to Marseille and established uh, his double monastery there, Men and Women, and um, and began to um, Write his conferences, which were then passed on, and Cassian. Oh, sorry, and at the end of this little book, uh, Saint Benedict says, uh, "When you have learnt the basics, the very s- simple basics of monastic life, by living this little rule for beginners, which is what he calls it, then he said." You will be ready to move on to greater heights or deeper depths, and he said, "Now you, you know, then you will move to the wisdom of Cassian, the conferences of the desert, the conferences of the fathers of the desert, in particular." So, the, so, uh, so, and and Benedict says the conferences of Cassian should be read at meals every day in the monastery. So, and the word for conferences in Italian is colazione, which means a meal. So the conferences became accompanied <laughs> the, the, the the physical food, but became the spiritual food of the monks for a thousand years. So, we, we can see how the... Uh, the wisdom of Benedict was derived from this primitive source of monasticism. And Benedict looked back, this is a, he's maybe a generation, 150 years or so after Cassian, so he looked back with a little bit of nostalgia, as we always do, to a golden <coughs> age. So he looked back to what he called the, the, the real old monks and these were real monks you know not the half-hearted lot that we are so he would say for example in the good old days the monks would never drink wine but as today monks cannot be persuaded of this because they were living in Italy of course as well so you can't persuade the monks not to drink wine so at least we say you should drink only you should drink in moderation and we therefore prescribe that the, the monks should be given one hemina of wine a day. Problem is, nobody knows what a hemina is. <laughs> so it's one of those one-off words. <laughs> and I think uh, I think it 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 was partly a joke, maybe, um, in which he's saying. Um, what is right for you may not be right for me. And this is a very important spiritual principle in the rule, which is of discretion. First of all, moderation. Benedict is famous for the middle way, like the Buddha. The Buddha tried extreme forms of asceticism in order to find enlightenment, and found that didn't work. He you know, had already tried uh, the more self-indulgent... Uh, way of life and that didn't work so eventually of course he came to the middle way well the middle way is universal it's like the golden rule it's, the, it's one of the great spiritual wisdoms and discoveries so Benedict uh, is, is in well in that traditional wisdom of the middle way Naked uh, Nemes, nothing in excess he says uh, moderation in all things except moderation so um, so moderation and discretion. You can't have moderation without discretion. Discretion means you have to not just live by a rule book. People often refer to the, the, rule, the rules of St. Benedict, but it's not rules. It's not a collection of... Um, it's not like the Highway Code. It's it's the rule, the regular. So it's the way to maintain a steady, straight line. So He's not saying there's a shortcut, but there is a straight path. And the rule allows you to follow the straight path. And um, the wisdom of the rule and why it is of such value in the spiritual life and in developing a, a good human balance of life for everyone, is that um, he recognizes the importance of exceptions. So you could, so he, for example, he will say. Silence is very important in the monastery, especially at the end of the day. So after Compline, which is the night prayer, uh, the monks must not speak at all. But then he'll say, uh, well, of course, if somebody comes late as a guest, then obviously you will have to speak and greet them. and, And he says, welcome every guest who comes to the monastery, even if they come at three o'clock in the morning, you welcome them as Christ himself. So the principle of hospitality, in a discreet way, uh, overrides the rule of silence. Or he'll say, for example, it is not good for monks to wander around, to go outside the monastery too much, because they get distracted and um, but then he has a whole chapter on what how monks should be when they do travel because he knows that they will have to go outside sometimes on trips or whatever so and then when you do go out on a trip don't stop praying keep the regular times of prayer even when you're traveling which is what I do I travel quite a lot and I keep my regular times of prayer my office and my meditation. So, so the rule is not uh, this rigid <coughs> collection of of, of uh, highway code, you know, rules, but a, a, it, it, it evokes a a way of living which is both balanced and moderate flexible without losing its ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal of the of the life that Benedict is describing, the life of the monastery, is to see God. In fact he says when when people come to the monastery, they knock on the door and they want to come in, he'll say, Well keep them waiting for a little bit. So you can't just take in anybody when they knock on the door. Um, but uh, if they seem to be, you know, reasonable, and uh, then you let them in. And then if they say they want to stay, you say, well, now, this is how we live. Do you want to live like this? And then you discern, do they truly seek God? Truly seek God. And, uh, and then you give them a chance. You live with them. Uh, it's, it's the best way of finding out whether somebody should be in a monastery is for them to live in the monastery. And then you uh, you give them guidance. You appoint somebody to be the spiritual guide, the novice master. And in Benedict's rule, within one year, actually, and today it's much longer, it could be up to five years of preparation and training, But the benefit of it was basically if after one year they seem to be able to live the life and they are truly seeking God, then you say, well, here's the rule that we're living by. You're living under an abbot. You're living in a community. We have this is our daily schedule. This is the spirit of our life. Do you want to live it? Yes or no? And... Maybe, maybe people were more quick to make decisions in those days. Uh, and he would uh, then, if they accepted to live that life, then they would be received into the community. And they would make three promises. The promise of obedience, of stability, and conversion of life. These are, these are the three vows, if you like, that the Benedictine monk takes. And when you're training to be a monk or a Benedictine oblate, which is a, a, a lay person who's living in the rule of Saint Benedict, you study and reflect upon the meaning of those three precepts. So, what does obedience mean? You might think that obedience just means like in an army setting, uh, you obey the order of your superior. Well, Benedict is aware that human society is always hierarchical, and uh, he establishes the abbot as as the, uh, the head of the monastery, but a spiritual head of the monastery, who himself is subject to the rule and to the spirit of the rule, and is not a tyrant, He has to consult. If there's a major decision, he has to consult the whole community. He can't just do what he likes. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with him. He has to consult, then he makes the decision. So there is that element of obedience, that you accept you're living within a certain framework of, of life. But he says the monks must also be obedient to each other. So you have the vertical obedience and to, the, to the abbot or somebody he appoints to a position of responsibility. And then there is a horizontal obedience, which is the obedience that you give to one another. And Then you begin to realize what obedience means. Essentially, obedience is not just doing what you are told, it's listening. The word obedience comes from the word obadire, which means to listen. And it's the first uh, word of of the rule, actually. Listen, my son, to your master's precepts, and incline the ear of your heart. Receive willingly and carry out effectively your loving father's advice that by the labour of obedience you may return to the one from whom you had departed by the sloth of disobedience. Now, this is a very male language and there's a uh, good reason for that at, at that time. Uh, many of the, the great commentaries, modern commentaries, are written by women and sister uh, Joan Chichester. Benedictine nun, very fiery feminist nun in America, has uh, has written a uh, a, a sort of changed the language and written a a woman's um, commentary on it, which is which is excellent and allows a lot of people to get into the rule who otherwise would have been put off by the language in this way. But anyway, the important thing here is that is that obedience is seen to be all-inclusive, horizontally as well as vertically. And it's about listening, you could say, to the Word of God. It's listening to the spirit, or -hmm. listening to the deeper structure of meaning (coughs) in what is happening in your life or in your relationship. So, okay, so, so we're living in the monastery together, and we have a conflict. Maybe a big conflict or a small one. Or we may just be having a discussion about something that should be done. To be in the spirit of obedience is that we're not just talking about the external circumstances, but through those external circumstances and encounters, we are tuning in to the deeper level of meaning, to the Word of God, let's say, or to this frequency of a deep structure of meaning in daily life. And nothing is without meaning. For Benedict, he's not talking about mystical raptures, he's not talking about transfigurations, he's, he's talking about ordinary life. And this is his genius, actually. Because he knows that we seek God in the ordinary things of life, and in the ordinary way of life. In some ways you could almost say that he transcends the sacred because the sacred for Benedict is not a separate realm of religious or philosophical existence. Uh, The presence of God is, is, is imminent in everything. Occasionally he he shows he shows us this. He says that the monks, when they are given tools to go and work out in the fields or in the carpentry room or whatever, uh, they have to treat these tools with respect. Very practical, abbot. You know, don't come back with your electric drill broken again. This cost money, and you can't. So, he, but he says treat the tools of the monastery as if they were the sacred vessels of the altar. Quite a statement for the 6th century religious teacher. The tools of the monastery, treat them with the same respect that you give to the sacred vessels of the altar, the chalice and the pattern and the altar and so on. So, So, obedience is about tuning in through the ordinary encounters of daily life through this self-communicating word of God that comes to you through your own experience, through your life in community, as well as through the depths of your own prayer. That's obedience. Then the second precept is stability. Now, I mentioned that Benedict doesn't like monks to go wandering around the world, but... uh, the stability he's really talking about, and we put this in the context of, of um, the monastic tradition, is an interior stability. And it's an interior stability that comes about through your perseverance, through your daily fidelity to the structure of life, that you have committed yourself to, and your fidelity to the relationships in which you find yourself. So monastic life is very different from marriage because you don't choose the people you're living with. But in some ways it's like married life because you have to put up with each other. And you learn, perhaps through time and mistakes and conflict, and the maturing of relationships, and your own self-knowledge, you learn how to live with, in love with other people. Benedict says the monks must not compete with each other in any way, except to the degree that they love one another. So you you compete with each other, to, you know, I'm loving you more than you're loving me, sort of thing. So, stability is is not only physical, it's also a commitment to the the rhythm of life and also to the relationships of life. Now, this is why the rule of St. Benedict is both attractive and strange to modern people, because we don't have much rhythm in our lives, certainly not as Benedict envisaged it. When you go to a monastery, there's a timetable, and you follow that timetable, unless something particularly takes you out of it, you you follow it. get up at a certain time, you, you eat at a certain time, you pray at a certain time, you do your work, then you drop your work and come back to the prayer. And the day is punctuated, in Benedict's rule, by seven periods of prayer. And... They take priority. But there are two other aspects of life that he he emphasizes that have to be worked into that life of prayer. One is study, dexio, reading, and the other is um, work. Now, Benedict insists, and again, unusual for a 6th century uh, spiritual master the monks must read. This is the beginning of literacy. And it's a very significant statement and has had a huge effect upon Western civilization. That literacy is a necessary element of human development. Today we would take that for granted. Even though you know, if somebody can't read or write, and we feel they are not you know, being given a chance to get on in the world, and so on, but this is this is a, a different kind. This is not just about passing exams or being able to fill out your tax returns. This is about the ability to reflect through sacred literature, especially for Benedict, on the meaning of your own experience. If we don't read, we are rather more likely to be isolated in our own private world. So he insists that the monks read every day. Lexia. And the other element that you have to work into the rhythm of your life is uh, work. And he says, idleness is the enemy of the soul. Uh, Monks should work Benedictine monks unlike Buddhist monks have to make their own living they should work by the labour of their hands Um, he says they should when they sell the food or the crafts that they make they should sell them at a little less than the market rate going on in the world Um, not all monasteries keep to that precept they sometimes make sort of luxury items like soap and cream and things. I don't know whether it's brought below market price, but they're supposed to. And, um, but the work of the monastery, which could be working in the fields, and you know, it's manual work primarily, but it could be also intellectual work. You know, after a few centuries, it became copying of the manuscripts or teaching in the schools. So work... Was, is an essential element. Buddhist monks are not allowed to work, not allowed to carry uh, money even, like Thai monks anyway. But Benedictine monks, uh, I think, reflect a Christian incarnational view of life, that life itself and every aspect of life is penetrated by the divine. So, um, so. so anyway, so, they, so, so the, the, these are the... Uh, These are two of the vows that the monk takes. Uh, Obedience, stability, stability in the rhythm of life, that is prayer, work and study. And thirdly, the vow of conversion, conversatio mora. Some years ago when the Dalai Lama was giving us a uh, seminar here in London, uh, he read the gospel texts a number of gospel texts for us uh, over a few days. And uh, at the end of it, uh, we, a large gathering of Benedictine monks and nuns came together in my monastery in, in London. And uh, to listen to him, he was going to speak to them. And he was supposed to speak to them on the rule of St. Benedict, but he hadn't had much time to study the rule of St. Benedict. So I gave him a very short little brief kind of briefing on the rule. And I spoke about these three vows of Benedict. He gave a most brilliant talk. All the monks and nuns thought that he he studied the rule of Benedict for years. Uh, and he uh, listened to the three vows, uh, obedience, stability and conversion, and he said Conversion is the one that I can relate to most. It's the most Buddhist bow. And conversion, conversatio morum, means a continuing uh, uh, conversion of life and of the way you're living, morum, your mores, your, your, your style of life. It's a continuing process of conversion. So you are open to continuous change. You have to live in a state of continuous detachment from anything you have achieved or reached. So you have this tension in Benedict's vision between the stability and the conversion. So the roots going down deep and the branches growing and spreading uh, in another dimension. So anyway, these are, these are some uh, some um, reflections on, on on the rule. I hope it's given you a bit of a, f- a flavour of it. Um, he's uh, he has some very interesting things to say about um, about how conflict should be dealt with in the community. He's he's very patient. Uh, encourages great patience um, but if if somebody is totally incorrigible, if they have been talked to, given time, and everything else, and this person is just clearly not going to budge, eventually he says you have to let them go, but you can bring, you can take them back three times, so in that you if you live in a monastery you 'll see patterns like that sometimes, but generally. He, he, he sees the life of the community not as achieving perfection. It's not about following a path of perfectionism. It's much more a path of of uh, formation, of healing, personal healing through discipline, through the through the three vows, and uh, through a gradual transformation. But then he reminds us in the last chapter of the rule, this is just for beginners. Okay? And this is a chapter not many abbots will, will talk a lot about, because it throws the whole of the rule into a, a new perspective. So what comes after this? So this is, what he says is, um, now what we have written in this rule in order that by its observance in monasteries we may show that we have attained some degree of virtue and the rudiments of the religious life. It is a little rule for beginners. Whoever you are, therefore, who are hastening to the heavenly homeland, Fulfill with the help of Christ and he doesn't speak a lot about Christ in the rule, although Christ is present everywhere. Fulfill with the help of Christ this minimum rule, this little rule for beginners, which we have written for beginners. And then at length, under God's protection, you will attain to the loftier heights of doctrine and virtue which we have mentioned above. So it is Goal-oriented, in a way. But it is, it is not perfectionistic. So what is the next step after the, after the rule? Well, there's a little ambiguity here, because on the one hand he says, this is the best form of monastic life. To live in a community, you have an abbot, you have your community, you stay in the same place, you uh, live this rhythm of life, and you allow the life itself to change you. This is what any Benedictine monk would say. It's the life that changes you. It's the rule of life that changes you, by living it, not by thinking about it, but by living it. So this is, he says, this is the highest form of life. But then he also says, in another passage, when you have learned the basics, through living for some time in this common life, then you are ready to go into the single-handed combat of the desert. In other words, you're ready to go into solitude. So now you go into your cave in the, the mountains, or you go into a hermitage in the woods. So there's a slight tension here, and it's a tension that you find in all monasteries, between community and solitude. Actually, it's a very human tension. You find it in families, you find it in marriages, in all friendships. And the relationship between community and solitude is something that is variable. You know, it's, Jung says that, what does he say? Every relationship has its optimum distance. Mm-hmm. and that, But that optimum distance may... Vary from day to day, or year to year, or different stages of your life. So I think that also points to uh, and finally one important thing that brings us to meditation. Benedict doesn't speak a lot about the interior journey, but don't think that he's not talking. He's not thinking about it. It he he he, he says. On, Few occasions. The monk who wants to pray alone should be respected to do that. He can stay on in the prayer room after the other monks have left. In which, in which case, don't make a noise. Let him pray there quietly. The monk sh- who goes around his daily routine should be repeating in his heart some verse or mantra from the from scripture. So he should be. He should be praying at this level in the prayer of the heart as he goes about his daily life. So there is a clear and obvious. It'd be very strange if it weren't there. Uh, this obvious uh, interiority to his vision of the of, of the life. What he's focusing upon is the structure which makes that possible and makes it possible for it to evolve eventually. To, at least maybe for some people at some stage to, to deeper levels of prayer now our community around the world, meditation, meditation community manifests something that uh, my teacher John Mayne believed that meditation creates community and it's a uh, challenging idea in a way because we think of meditation as something interior, something solitary Um, and what has it got to do with community? (coughs) It does and when you meditate with people you form a unique kind of relationship with them when you meditate on your own You are transforming the way you see yourself, not as an isolated (coughs) autonomous being, but by seeing yourself in relationship. (coughs) It changes the way you see your place in the world, your relationship not only with the people in your life, but the people strangers or whoever you meet on the train or plane or anywhere. So there is this paradox and this mystery, really, uh, of solitude and community, of interiority and of relationship. And meditation is at the heart of this. Meditation is this experience of seeking God, as St. Benedict would might call it. Seeking God in whatever uh, way of belief or whatever way of understanding makes sense to you so meditation it really does also express as it were interiorly the three vows that the Benedictine monk takes remember what they were obedience which is listening which is the work of silence So meditation is the work of silence. We know we do this work by listening, not by speaking. Not by speaking our own thoughts, but by listening to something deeper. That's obedience. Then there is stability. Meditation is about stillness. Stillness of body, stillness of mind. And Medi- and meditation is also about conversion, allowing oneself to be changed, and allowing change to uh, to take place, both interiorly and externally. So, maybe we could take a few minutes to meditate, just a good way of ending, and um, me uh, I mentioned to you that uh, this fifth uh, century monk John Cassian brought the wisdom of the desert to to the to the west uh, is Saint Benedict points to him as the as the teacher that we should look to uh, as the next stage of prayer and uh, this is what John Maine did and uh, so let me share with you what... Uh, Cassian taught out of that uh, deep and ancient tradition so we could just take a moment then to sit still and upright feet on the ground your hands on your lap or on your knees just be aware of a moment of stability stability of the body stillness of the body relax your shoulders, relax the muscles of your face. The desert monks described prayer as the laying aside of thoughts. So meditation is not what you think. To lay aside our thoughts, we need a, a focal point. And in this tradition, the focal point is your mantra, your word, your sacred word. So you take a word, and you repeat this word gently, silently, faithfully, in your mind and heart laying aside all other thoughts, good thoughts as well as bad thoughts. So we sit still, breathe normally, close our eyes lightly, and then gently begin to repeat our word. The important thing is to stay with the same word. If you have your own way of meditation, of course, you can do that. If you have your own mantra, you can stay with that, of course. But otherwise, the word I would recommend is the word Maranatha. Four syllables, ma ra ma As you say the word, listen to it, say it obediently faithfully and keep returning to it whenever you become distracted so let's uh, conclude meditation now take a moment to maybe just take a moment to be aware of your breath the ordinary present moment without losing the tranquility of meditation. Let's end with this uh, last paragraph of the prologue which is the most original part of Benedict's rule. And so we are going to establish a school for the service of the Lord. In founding it, we hope to introduce nothing harsh or burdensome. But if a certain strictness results from the from learning to love or for the amendment of vices, do not be at once dismayed and run away from the way of salvation, because the entrance to this way must be narrow. Because as we advance in this life and in faith, our hearts expand, and we run the way of God's commands with an indescribable sweetness of love. And therefore, never leaving his school, but persevering in the monastery according to his teaching until death, we may by patience share in the sufferings of Christ and deserve also to share in his kingdom. That probably captures the essence of the rule. The monastery, the community, your family, your place of work, your life is a school of the Lord's service, based on service, not on production. Service. And then uh, don't be frightened of discipline just a narrow entrance because it will lead you to run along the way of the Lord's commands with this inexpressible sweetness of love. And Benedict, surprisingly perhaps, but not so surprisingly if you get his point, often uses these images of speed in the rule. So you don't just trudge along the way of the Lord's commandments—you run along them, and uh, you don't just put, pull yourself uh, into the uh, life, but you
1: you you, uh, you you walk swiftly into it. And so